Hi everyone, Sam here. Thank you so much for listening to The Policy Dispatch. Before we dive in, if you want to enjoy premium access to the podcast and want to read or listen to the unmissable and informative journalism from Foresight Climate and Energy, make sure to subscribe. You can try us for 30 days for less than one euro a day, which will give you access to our website and app. Just follow the link in the show notes or go to www.foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe to find out more. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of The Policy Dispatch. I'm your host, Sam Morgan, with you this week to talk all about storage. As the energy transition gains pace and more clean energy is plugged into the mix, we're going to need loads of extra storage options to soak up any power that can't be dispatched immediately. Whether that is because grids still won't be able to handle all those green electrons, or there'll be too much power when the wind is blowing a gale, it matters not. Storage will need to up its game. Today we're going to be looking at what energy policies will need to be changed to make that possible and what the major challenges are. Turbocharging the discussion with me today is Thomas Lewis from the European Association for Storage of Energy. Before we kick things off, here's your policy dispatch quiz question. According to Bloomberg New Energy Finance, about 27 gigawatts of storage was online worldwide at the end of 2021. By how much is that figure predicted to multiply by 2030? Will it increase 5 times, 10 times, 15 times, or 20 times? Answer after the show. Okay, Thomas, thank you so much for joining me for this episode. Looking forward to chatting more about storage and what the future holds for this particular technology. No, thank you. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I mean, it's it's clearly a very, very important time in European policy making for energy, but uh, specifically for energy storage, there's lots of things that has uh, come out and of course the electricity market design, but a lot of other uh, interesting details that I'm sure we can get into. Brilliant. Well, maybe we can start with um, an overview of how things currently stand. Maybe is grid storage actually being rolled out? What, you know, are investments being made or is it one of those technologies where industry says, oh yeah, we love that, but they don't do anything about it? Yeah, no, so, so, uh, with ease, what, what we do, we have a, a, a European market monitor on energy storage, our, our MS, which is really the way in which we sort of look at what projects are existing in Europe, um, not just the EU. We do look a bit of uh, the UK, sometimes a little bit in Norway to really get the, the, the whole area. Our latest one, we looked at uh, 2,600 projects. So we have a big database for our members to dig into to see where these projects are being built. And we sort of gave an overview of not just uh, grid-based storage, or what we sometimes call front-of-the-meter storage, uh, but also storage being used by uh, industry uh, that's co-located with renewables, residential in homes, so you know, it's a wide range. Um, member states really vary which sort of uh, energy storage they're using in terms of its location. So, for example, in Germany, which is really the biggest market in the EU, uh, it's you know, just uh, sort of matched with the UK as well. Um, most of it is behind the meters. So the vast majority of what's being rolled out is really in residential in homes. Whereas if you look at pretty much all other member states, it, it, it's majority uh, front of the meter. It's, it's going to be majority grid, not by number of projects, but by the size of them. And uh, if, if some member states might have around 50-50, but in the future, it's going to be grid. Mm-hmm. So this is the direction for a lot of things where it comes to capacity purely. So if you look at Ireland and Finland, for example. Um, if you look at current battery in Europe, we're looking, so this is batteries only, not energy storage, just batteries. That's about um, 10 gigawatts right now, which which what we calculated and actually matches the commission estimates. I mean, we're actually having this chat in the same week that 
the European Commission uh, unveiled what its reform of electricity markets is going to look like, very much anticipated by um, by everybody, um, pending changes, of course. Um, how does that plan affect storage in particular? Is there anything in there that will make life easier for the sector, more difficult, more complex? Um, what does that look like? I think, I mean, our first response when, when seeing the proposal come out and also, you know, the, the week running up, you get a few leaks as you always do, was overwhelmingly quite positive to, uh, in all honesty. I think that the, the language we went into this going with originally was the idea of long-term contracts, was the idea of being able to secure revenue streams to make sure there's a, a baseline that a, a project can actually earn to say to investors, look, uh, we can make money over a certain period we can be invested in. And then also at the same time, looking for new revenue streams, looking at new services that could be provided to, 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 to stack on top of each other as revenue stacking um, to actually yeah, build a healthy business case. And what we've seen from uh, the proposal, it's not too bad just to, as a starting block, as a foundation. Um, one key thing, for example, is this new uh, flexibility support schemes. There's a whole article on this. Uh, which looks at how you can actually sp support energy storage and also demand side response, if you wish, um, with uh, yeah, the actual support schemes to give these solid revenue streams. But at the same time, very, very keenly, it speaks about making sure there's market access to be able to respond to price signals. Because it's a very careful balance you have to you have to make with energy storage. You want a bit of a make sure there's some security with investment, but also you need this open market to respond to price signals to buy when the you know, when it's low, when there's uh, more renewables in the grid and there's energy available and then sell when high, when desperately uh, cleaner energy is needed back into the grid. So, yeah, at the moment, that's, it's a good start. Yeah, one thing we also think is very important is the idea of sort of having a bit more of a strategy. And I think to have that, you really need to know how much energy storage you need. So I think for, with ease, what we did, we, we uh, made a report looking at potential targets for 2030 and 2050. We saw that 200 gigawatts would be, of storage would be needed by 2030 and around 600 by 2050. Um, but of course, what we need is analysis of how much flexibility do you need in the system? And what this uh, market design reform actually sets out is member states would now have to, every two years, look at flexibility needs in the member state with a five-year horizon. And from that, we'd be able to set uh, indicative national objectives. So they work out what the flexibility is and then say how much energy storage or demand response or other forms of flexibility would you need to meet that and that is definitely definitely positive to see that kind of target where you know the eu calls on governments regulators to, to do this kind of proper planning is that something that governments normally push back on or is that something that they're kind of open to doing they just need to be asked to do it you know is this something that you think will actually happen yeah, I mean, it really depends on <laughs> depends on the member state. Yeah, it, it really depends on the one who who's in government or, or yeah, the different views in different member states. For example, I mean, Spain has uh, an energy storage target mm -hmm. uh, of about uh, twenty gigawatts by by uh, twenty thirty. I know Italy has a form of a target. Croatia has a target, though, be it very small. France has a little bit more of a strategy. So there are member states who are looking in this direction, mm -hmm. and and it has helped them. You know, by setting a target or sort of a bit of a strategy, it means they look at barriers more closely and they might say, oh, actually, we have an issue of uh, double taxation, for example, and look at a way of solving that. Mm -hmm. So it is a useful method. But I think it's, it's sort of, there might be other member states who, who push back and say, you know, uh, we, we prefer a system where we can compare all different options. And I think for, for us, it, it's looking 
if you're not going to assess the flexibility needs, you're not going to know what the options are. Right. So I think making that uh, as a mandatory part, seeing what you actually need to look at, and then going to member states and look, you can set indicative objectives as a term, not targets they use, but objectives. I think this is a, a good good first step. Mm-hmm. You mentioned long-term contracts. They've been kind of the crux of this whole reform, let's call it, of the electricity markets that's going to happen. Um, obviously, they make any kind of project more bankable you know you've got a long-term contract you can go to the bank and say you know i want a load of money i can get paid for it over this 20-year period or, or however long you've got the contract for um are storage projects and cfds for example contracts with difference a good fit um or do those cfds need to be redesigned or do they need to be tweaked on how they work in order to actually pair with storage projects rather than a wind farm or a solar farm for example yeah, certainly. So I think if if CFDs were going to be used for storage on its own, or perhaps storage which is co-located with renewables, mm-hmm. it would have to be specifically tailored for, for the energy storage unit or energy storage units in, in general. Uh, because, of course, what a CFD does, it effectively sets a, a sort of a set price coming out. Of course, it isn't exactly that. It's a bit more dynamic than that, but mm-hmm. that, that's what you're looking at. Uh, but the issue is, of course, as I said before, energy storage needs to be responding to price signals. So, for example, a, a CFD potentially, as an idea, it could be you would have, you, you could split the capacity of energy storage. You could have a part of it being completely open to the market using arbitrage. Uh, it could be providing different system services. And then another part of it could be more specific, linked to more of a classic CFD, but of course, the, the price would be tailored for energy storage. So that is one idea uh, of many. Um, and I think the way the uh, flexibility support schemes are discussed and how the, the, the design principles that are set up in the new electricity market design reform um, are open enough so that sort of model could be placed in there. But I think there's, there's a range of different ideas of how you could you could fix this, either CFDs or either either cap and floor, for example, for different technologies. So I think there's a there's room to be discussed of how member states can can uh, build and design different support schemes. Is that a trial and error process? Do you think that it's going to actually need projects to just try a, a cap and floor or other forms of financial instruments just to see what works and then you know other developers can either copy that or make their own decisions or or do you think that it's going to be more of a wait and see approach for, for storage operators um i think that's i think that's a very good point actually i think because if you look at cfds in europe for renewables i mean a lot of what was done was looked at what the uk did first mm-hmm. uh, i think the uk had a bit of pilot projects as well originally but I, and I think the whole of the UK was a bit of a pilot project for Europe to see how does this all work. And then they were brought over a bit more to the EU. Um, it is true then, you know, we don't have that exact same thing for storage. So perhaps there would be a bit more of a, a trial and error uh, to work out what, what is best. Well, we've spoken about Europe so far, but China and the United States are, are also massive storage players. If you just look at the amount of capacity that they're rolling out over the years, is the main reason for that because well, they've got more money, they've got more fiscal space to do that. Or are there, do you think, regulatory lessons that mean that they can deploy more storage? You know, is that the reason why Europe, um, not so much lagging behind, but is that the reason why Europe hasn't turbocharged the industry yet? I mean, how can you compare those three? Or are they just two, are they three different examples or just two different to compare? Uh, I think I think I think it's worth comparing, uh, and I, I think the situation in China is very different than the situation in the U.S. 
but with the two things they have in common is is national energy storage targets. I mean, I'm repeating myself a lot, but China has a national energy storage target of I think 30 gigawatts by 2025. Uh, California has an energy storage target of uh, 11.5 gigawatts by I think that's 2030. Um, and other other states within the U.S. have set similar targets. But I think there are certain states in the U.S. that are really driving the U.S. in forms of energy storage, and other states inside it lagging behind. But it is once again having this strategy, having this direction, giving investor confidence that actually means this thing gets rolled out. Um, of course, the U.S. has had the Inflation Reduction Act and also the uh, American Battery Materials Initiative. So it has ways of actually having yeah, a bigger strategy around what, what would be involved for energy storage. Uh, of course, with China, it, it is the source of a lot of the supply chain as well. So there is you know, uh, economies of scale and there are some benefits there for producing uh, the energy storage units in that country and then deploying it in that country. Um, and uh, yeah, so I think, I think, yeah, two different methods, but clearly the, the, the point is there were strategies around this. And then these strategies can lead to looking at different sort of uh, regulatory instruments uh, to best uh, roll out energy storage. Mm-hmm. Um, and specifically in the US, for example, a lot of the focus has been on reducing the gas that's used for peaking plants. Um, and also, I think in the US, you have a lot of gas peaking, which means you have these high prices when it is peaked. So the, the, the spread is a bit larger, which means you have uh, decent revenue to be made on arbitrage, mm-hmm. where perhaps in the, U- in the EU, it's a little bit lower. So then energy stories need to look for other forms of revenue a bit more, which is when you get this revenue stacking and looking for services, which is why in the EU, it's, a, it's vital that these new services are, are rolled out. Mm-hmm. I mean, we spoke about the different, you know, EU strategies and laws and regulations that all sort of set the, shall we say, the scene for storage. But in, I think it's June, every single EU member country is going to have to update its national energy and climate plans, NECPs as we call them, that says how they're going to get to net zero, 2030 targets, all this kind of thing. Do you see that as a real opportunity for storage to like get a bigger part of the you know the energy funding financing to play a bigger role basically where you will see people maybe copying you said about spain's big target for 2030 do you think that that will be a moment for storage to really um do more yeah i I think the the necps are a very very good way of i mean what they are effectively they are plans they are strategies and i think it, it is a good way in which storage could uh play a good role here. Uh, for example, yeah, as you mentioned in, in, with Spain, I think that's a good example for other member states to be looking at and copying. I think a lot of times when we looked at legislation, not just the electricity market design, but the renewable energy directive, the energy efficiency directive, the uh, energy performance and buildings directive, a, a lot of what these, these legislative files are doing are actually updating what is needed in NECPs. And uh, I've mentioned as well that, 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 that energy storage would be included in this analysis far more. So I think yeah, I, I would agree that this is a good opportunity when the member states are going over them. Uh, I think the question is a lot of things that would be added from the electricity market design probably won't be making their ways in the next one, unfortunately, maybe the one afterwards. But I, I, hopefully member states are following what's happening in Brussels, as seeing what, where the negotiations are going, and will be incorporating some of these ideas for energy storage in, in their plans. Hi everyone, Sam here again. Just wanted to remind you and maybe your colleagues as well that premium access to the pod and Foresight's brilliant journalism is just a click away. Try a subscription for 30 days for just 29 euros. 
that gives you access to our website and audio app. Go to www.foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes. Now, back to the show. We've talked quite a lot about grid storage so far, batteries in particular. There's also um, long duration energy storage, which uh, is a bit of a not obsession of mine at the moment, but I'm just so fascinated by the types of technology that I hadn't actually heard of before. You know, uh, hot sand, iron air, gravity, all this kind of thing that can store energy and then deploy it, uh, you know, days, weeks, even months later when it's needed. Why are those technologies not more commonplace at the moment? Is it just tech barriers? Is it financing? Is it regulatory? Um, do you see them playing a bigger role anytime soon? What does the outlook look for those kind of um, innovations? Yeah, so you you mentioned some briefly some different technologies. So there's also you know uh, compressed air energy storage, um, liquid energy storage. You mentioned gravity, um, thermal energy storage is playing a big role, and that's not just storage that stores heat and releases heat later. Mm-hmm. Uh, it can also be with cold as well. You have ice storage, but also you can take in electricity and give out to different thermal uh, heat or, or cooling, so that you have the sector coupling within it, which is very interesting. Uh, renewable hydrogen is also a, a form of, of uh, long duration energy, energy storage, flow batteries, uh, and of course, uh, let's not forget pumped hydro storage. Mm-hmm. This has been the legacy energy storage, but it is it is a long duration energy storage. It, it, LDS is not something new. No. Um, and of course, other interesting chemistries as well doing a lot. So what do we have today? So uh, under the projects of common interest, which is linked to the the 10-year network development plans of the EU, there is a long-duration energy storage project uh, being built off the coast of the Netherlands, which is a compressed uh, air energy storage, which has around 320 uh, megawatts grid capacity with the scope to double in size. So this is already happening. And what this can do is capture um, wind energy that would otherwise be curtailed. Uh, So it's possible to get the ball rolling. The tech does exist. Um, What the issues are, uh, one is, once again, long-term contracts is understanding, you know, where am I going to get my revenue stream in a, in a, for a long period? Um, also, long-duration energy storage has a bit of an issue where it has fewer cycles. So if you are uh, battery energy storage, four hours, for example, you'll be cycling up and down several times in a day, many times in a week mm-hmm. uh, to balance the energy system. Whereas a longer duration will have fewer of those cycles, so it's making revenue less often. Of course, the idea would be that it'd be selling at certain points where it is a little bit higher. So you make a bit more money at that point. But is it making it competitive? It's more efficient to make more cycles, potentially. Um, So that's another issue. So there's no sort of premium at all for holding energy longer, longer periods, um, which makes it a bit more a risky of an investment somewhat. Um, I would also say there are questions about innovation. Innovation is essential. There are a lot of technologies for long duration, which are not market ready. So we still need to make sure that there is funding, especially under things such as Horizon Europe. But I think the hard bit is also that jump from having this higher tech maturity, which is a bit higher than development, but not yet commercialized. And that jump is the hard one that people are finding very difficult, which is when hopefully these flexibility support schemes could play a bit of a role with making that bridge. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I think obviously yeah, a greater focus on things such as thermal energy storage, for example, been a lot more popular, more discussed recently, um, it, because of course over the winter we were talking a lot about heating homes. So I think the topic of heat has become very important, but also to make sure that yeah, all these technologies are, are better understood. 
No, when we look at the European example of renewable energy deployment in solar and wind at the moment, right? How do developers of those projects decide if they're going to put storage with them? What type of storage to go for? Because I guess with solar, we know when the the sun is going to rise and when it's going to set, cloud cover notwithstanding, of course. Um, But with wind, obviously, it's much more difficult to predict when you're going to get that uh, power generating gusts. Um, What do the considerations look like when you're deciding then what storage you want? I mean, presumably, if there's long duration energy storage, that is better suited to different types of generation, whereas batteries, you can put it with a solar power plant, you know when the sun is going to come out, blah, 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 blah. Is that a really difficult exercise to carry out? Or is it relatively simple to decide, I should go for this technology type? Or is this where the real sort of problem is in, in getting more storage out there? Yeah, I think it becomes a bit difficult for them when there is actually more options, uh, which is obviously a good thing. But then, you know, previously, if you use a limited types of energy storage you could look at, you just go with what's given. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think you're correct with saying for, yeah, for, for, for solar, you sort of know at least what periods the sun can exist. And, you know, at the nighttime, you know, you're not going to have to be storing anything. Where with wind, you can get wind at any time of day, effectively. Um, so I think that has to be taken into consideration. And what can be modeled is roughly what is going to happen over a year for, for a renewable energy facility. And then you can sort of see how much excess uh, renewables you'd have, how much, you know, effectively, what is your risk of having curtailment, uh, which is effectively energy that is somewhat thrown away and not used as renewable energy. Uh, r- roughly in, in the EU, it can be roughly around 4%, maybe 5%. It's very hard to calculate, but a significant percentage of renewables aren't made into the, into the final system, aren't counted to renewable uh, energy targets and are never used. And then would obviously be, you'd have to use gas at a later period to replace this. So it's a, it's a valid question. What's interesting is actually looking at what different member states do with curtailment. For some member states, if you are a wind farm and you can't sell your energy, no one needs it, no one wants it, you would actually be paid to not use your energy and effectively throw it away. Other member states don't have this or have different forms of how the money is allocated. So, of course, there's no actual is less of an incentive to install energy storage because you're going to make some money anyway. Now, the question is, is how much money are you making? How cheap is the energy storage? Uh, and as these curtailment payments get a bit lower, there's more of an incentive. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, also for, for wind, for example, so you might get large periods of lots of wind overnight. No one is using it. You can get several hours of excess energy. And this might be a period where you're looking at looking at longer duration energy storage or energy storage with a large capacity uh, to be able to fill up over large periods. Um, And I think the question then is not just from the point of view of the renewable facility, but the point of view of the energy system at large. Um, How long are you going to get periods, especially in early January, for example, of the Dunkelfleute? How long are you going to get it so you're going to get no renewables on the grid, effectively? No one's producing. There's no wind. There's no sun. And how many hours do you need to bridge? And I think that's really when long duration energy storage can play a big role of capturing energy that might have been previously curtailed and then uh, using it to bridge over these, these, these large gaps in the water. We mentioned some types of long-term energy contracts uh, earlier. Another one of them, I suppose, is capacity markets, You know, emergency systems of guaranteeing power supply. It's normally a gas peaking plant because you can just turn it on, turn it off. Um, they're you know gold-plated contracts. Basically, you get paid for doing nothing, and then you expect it to switch it on at a certain point. Is that a option for battery storage or grid storage in general? Of course, um, to enter these you know emergency pools of power generation, power supply, 
that countries can call upon if there is a problem or if the, you know there isn't enough renewables at some point or is are those markets not designed for storage so so without it without a doubt that, that there's room for energy storage there i think that there's a bit of a question at the moment of is is baseload over mm-hmm. you know do we need to focus on, on baseload power or, or can we sort of just rely on all the sources we have that are completely decentralized and be able to bring everything together at any moment and i think what we're seeing is perhaps that is the future we're moving to. I, I, I believe that. But at the moment, uh, you are going to have uh, sources where you, you don't have renewables in the system and you're going to need backup generation. Um, so historically, the capacity remuneration mechanisms have been dominated by gas and coal. I think Poland still has a lot of coal on, on, on its system. And as you said, these are long-term lucrative golden contracts. And especially for the fact that because they're meant to be used less Often they're backup. It means it's, it's very expensive to build a big gas turbine that's hardly being used. So it needs effectively a lot of money to keep the business case is the idea. So what has happened is they've brought in that they uh, previously a carbon cap of, um, to ensure that coal could be pushed out Mm -hmm. over time. I think Poland's got a bit of exception with this, which is a bit of a debate, but coal has been pushed out, but gas is still playing a significant role. So when the, when the commission came out with its electricity market design proposal, it speaks about ca- capacity remuneration mechanisms, which I was very, very happy to see. And additionally, they have a, an accompanying staff working document on the electricity market design in which they did an analysis of all the capacity mechanisms existing in Europe. And they found that energy storage is at very low levels, uh, below 300 megawatts in 2022 as, as a whole, which is astonishingly low it's a, it's a fraction of a percent it, it's there, there's so little in at the moment i knew it was low i was trying to do the numbers myself it's very hard to get uh, information from some countries uh-huh. um and if we got yeah poland i don't know i'm calling them out so much but has no energy storage whatsoever um so there are but there are at the same time member states who are doing new things so i think italy's last auction 30 percent of new capacity put onto the mechanism 30% was uh, energy storage. It was a battery energy storage grid scale. But of course, this was only just for Sardinia. It, it's an island, so it's more built up for this. It, it sort of uh, needs this a bit more is the idea. But still, this is 30% sounds very good, but that's 30% of just new capacity. Mm-hmm. It still has previous capacity. It still has old gas that is still legacy that is still on these old contracts. So the question is, is how would you bring on new energy storage uh, into this? Because what it can do, of course, it can take energy from previously and it can shift it to the time where it is needed um, in these emergency situations or when when there are no renewables. Mm -hmm. So firstly, we need to lower this cap. um, So lower it over time, but lower it significantly to, um, to, we we propose to 250 uh, grams of CO2 per kilowatt hour. Um, also, we need to ensure that these long contracts that have been given to gas would also be given to energy storage. There's no guarantee that if you suddenly get into the uh, capacity mechanism that you would just magically get these contracts. Uh, so we need to make sure they are still long contracts. And to really then uh, finally to have a premium on non-fossil carbon neutral sources that are in there. So not just being under the cap, but if you are non-carbon completely. So this could obviously is energy storage. This can also be demand response, uh, flexible forms of renewables could also participate. Make sure there's a bit of a, a premium for these technologies. Mm-hmm. 
So when we say about you know storage targets and and say there is this big boom of um, storage installations based on you know just demand and renewable energy targets have to be set and all these EU legislation suddenly coming into play, are there any risks that can be predicted already that will come if there is a lot of storage on the system? For example, like one one person said to me that you could see this risk of there being reduced investments in grids, for example, because batteries would be a more attractive um, proposal for developers to put in instead. Is that a risk as well? What other things do you see with um, a, you know, a, a big rollout of storage? Is there, are there any? It's okay if there aren't any, of course. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's interesting that you've heard that idea of a risk for grid investment because almost grid investment is obviously vital for the future rollout of renewables. There's, there's no denying that. There will be grid expansion. There'll be grid upgrades to make sure you can bring in renewables. Um, but when I when I see energy storage, it's versus in grid investment. It's a competition between two solutions. Mm-hmm. So if there is a hypothetical reduction in grid investments due to storage, this isn't a, a risk per se. This is just simply because energy storage was seen as a better solution in that particular case. So if anything, it can be saving. Uh, money on a system-wide level in, in certain cases where energy storage could be proven to to be better than, than grid investments. So this for me is is it's just more efficient. It's, it's not a risk because um, they're, they're tackling the same issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it, it's interesting because I think the Commission has also seen this in, in its proposal. So what, what it talks about is the idea of reforming tariff methodologies. These are the ways in which um, system operators. Uh, uh, transmission and distribution um, make their revenue. And what they'd have to do now is more better when they're looking at investments is to not just consider the capital expenditure, the money they're putting down at the beginning, but also the operational expenditure, the, the money they'll, they'll constantly be, be using. Mm-hmm. And this is in order to uh, promote the procurement of flexibility. So it, rather than just thinking, oh, I'm just going to build more grids uh, because that's just a CapEx mindset somewhat. I'm going to put this money down, build this thing. We own it, we operate it, and then this will deal with uh, imbalance in the system, with capacity. There's no incentive to look at uh, energy storage, which might mean more operational expenditure, having to procure it and pay for it mm-hmm. as time goes on. So the way it does is, yeah, it is looking at CapEx and OPEX and also looking at performance targets to make sure that uh, flexibility is procured. And when there are cases where the grid might need to be expanded, member st- uh, uh, transmission system operators and, and DSOs as well would have to be looking at, is flexibility uh, an option instead? And the cases where it's not, it's not. And you, you expand the grid and you invest in that. That makes the most sense. Mm-hmm. And the cases it is, you look at flexibility procurement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's not one or the other. It's going for what basically suits the you know horses for courses, I guess. I always like to close out these episodes with a similar question, and it's basically about, um, do you think that we're getting to a tipping point for storage now? We've got all these pieces in place. There's going to be big renewable energy targets. US has got its Inflation Reduction Act. You know, Clean energy is the way forward. We have this huge crisis where everyone's lost their mind slightly and now regained their sanity slightly. Um, yeah, do you think that in the you know coming years, it's going to be, right, we need storage? To store all this energy that we're wasting at the moment, we're having to pay to curtail it. We're going to invest it in that instead. What's what do you think the outlook is? Yeah, so I think I think the direction is is going. It's going in the right direction, effectively, and especially the language I'm seeing from within the, the Parliament, within different member states, within the Commission, 
is is looking at more uh, energy storage and the language is really is the idea as you are rolling out renewables energy storage is needed in parallel which which is the, the message i use um you know and it makes the most sense so i'm happy to see that direction there's been a lot more talk on co-located storage so matching it directly with renewables uh we're seeing a lot more ideas of residential uh, energy sharing has been a bit of a thing in the electricity market design so this is coming through i think also then as you say the focus on on grid energy storage is really the bit where uh, that seems to be, as I said at the beginning, the big rollout perhaps is a bit of where people aren't thinking about. This is, this is a bit of the gap at the moment. This is where we think is going to be the most capacity happening, but it isn't politically spoken about. Uh, an example of this is there's a new peak shaving product introduced in the electricity market design. So it can bring down peaks in certain moments where there, there's a lot of um, demand, which means you'd kick gas out of the system. And behind the meter, residential will be able to participate. It could, it could change when it's absorbing or in periods of high peaks, you could just a house or a, uh, industry could just run off the energy storage. Mm -hmm. However, grid-based storage can also move peaks around, can shift energy or move green energy to the peaks at a certain moment and kick gas out. But this is ignored. So I think, as I say, we're going in the right direction, but not all forms of energy is taken into consideration. Mm -hmm. And I think... The only way we're going to get a more of a holistic view in Europe is not just sort of this sporadic approach of looking at every single different legislative document and seeing how storage fits in, but it is an overarching EU strategy is what's needed. It's going to be having to look at flexibility needs. It's going to have to be looking at supply change, looking at innovation, looking at harmonizing the regulatory framework in Europe. And I think only with a, a strategy, which you've seen for different technologies, there's hydrogen strategy, there's the idea of a, a heat pump strategy has been announced. We have uh, interconnected targets. We have a lot of different ways of strategizing. And I feel the only way we're going to make sure that energy storage is going to be at the needs, that it's going to be at the level that we need for, for renewable rollout is through a strategy. Going in the right direction then, but still a lot of work to do. Um, thanks, Thomas, for joining me for this episode. I think sometimes it's a fundamental part of the energy system that's um, a little bit overlooked, but I think the more... Um, the more we talk about how to actually get all this clean energy into the system, the more we are going to have to ask these questions. So thank you so much for uh, joining me today. And it's always nice to have a conversation with a fellow Welshman away from home as well. <laughs> Didn't problem. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Thomas. Nice to be on. Thank you so much. That was a great chat today about storage, I think. It's an industry that will be absolutely fundamental to the energy transition. We're not at a tipping point yet, but as renewable energy policies, trade priorities and geopolitics all continue to line up to a certain extent, it really does seem like just a matter of time until a storage boom really takes off. As if to prove that, before the show I asked you by how much the current 27 gigawatts of storage globally is expected to increase by 2030, 5, 10, 15 or 20 times. The correct answer was... 15 times Bloomberg expects the total to top 411 gigawatts. Time will tell if that is a conservative prediction or not. Thank you once again for tuning into the Policy Dispatch. We really appreciate your patronage. Uh, do check out the website for the other podcasts and the rest of our quality journalism. Until the next show, goodbye for now. Mm -hmm.